Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann, and today we're very lucky to be joined by Mr. Michael Budd. How are you doing, Mickey? I'm good, thank you. Good to be here. And Bruce Momjian. How are you doing, Bruce? Good, good. It's been a little crazy week, but uh, I always enjoy these interviews, and uh, I've been traveling like crazy this year. I think since January, I've been to 15 cities. Wow. From wow. Singapore to Siberia. <laughs> so I'm, wow. I'm very happy to doing something it is local today so yeah yeah <laughs> local but via the internet the beauty of the internet you can be anywhere exactly. and everywhere oh that's awesome man yeah i mean uh, would you mind just introducing yourself to the audience yeah sure um my name is bruce Vomgen. i live in philadelphia i have been working with postgres since 1996 um before that i was an application developer before that i was a high school teacher and i've been working for enterprise db for 10 years and um, they specialize in enterprise tooling for Postgres. Uh, and my primary job there is to help to uh, develop the community and keep the community running smoothly and help out where I can. Of course, I attend uh, about 30 to 35 conferences a year. And I do these kind of interviews. I do webcasts. I occasionally visit customers uh and i work from home so it's actually i've been doing it for a long time now probably uh full time with postgres i've probably been 17 or 16 years now uh and it's really a great job i love it and and how did you get interested in like database systems then you know it's funny i've always been drawn to it in an, in an odd illogical way i don't know how to explain it but when i did when i was a high school teacher it was primarily uh, you know, I was teaching Pascal and, and uh, trying to think what other languages, mostly Pascal in the academics. And uh, when I became a database consultant for law firms in the 1990s, I used a lot of relational databases, including Informix and Ingress. And I was always fascinated about how these um, databases could take what looks like English, which is what SQL appears to be, and sort of interpret it into a language that it could understand and optimize and then return the results as quickly as possible. And I was always fascinated about, like, how does that work? How does it know what a keyword is? How does it know how to parse things? And I started to get really interested in it. Um, so I actually wrote my own little database uh, in shell script. It was, it was actually posted on Usenet. It's still around. It's called SHQL, and it's... It actually works, uh, but it was kind of a, a conglomeration of awk and grep and shell script. Then I tried a version in C, and then in, I guess, 1996, I started, so I was running Unix at home. And I was like, you know, I'd really love to run a database at home. And at that point, as you know, databases were hugely expensive. Uh, and I tried MSQL, which is out of Australia at that time. And then I originally found Postgres, realized it was really interesting software, but it was very buggy. And nobody's really like organizing it. So it had a lot of potential, but nobody was was really kind of helping to to take the patches and make releases out of it and sort of develop a process to improve the software. And that's how I got involved in the summer, in the spring of 
1996. And for about three years, I worked as a volunteer while I was still obviously doing database consulting um, on an hourly basis. And, you know, my wife would kind of say, why are you spending so much time with this Postgres thing? And, you know, <laughs> I was paid hourly. So she knew when I didn't work a lot in a month. And I said, well, we had, we had a big release that month. And, you know, <laughs> I had to. And she's like, well, why don't you spend more time with the family instead of doing that? Of course, there's no answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, you can't win. You can't win with yeah, that. Yeah, you can't win. You just don't even, you're just like, just, you just got to give the deer in the headlights look at that. <laughs> uh, but, but actually, one time I helped somebody on a Saturday. It was flowers.com. And, they, and, fla- and, and the doorbell rings on Monday, and it's flowers. And my wife's like, hey, where'd these flowers come from? I'm like, well, that, you know, that Postgres phone call I took on Saturday. <laughs> That was that was flowers.com and they sent me flowers. And she's like, Oh, you should take more calls like that, you know. And then uh, I was asked to do write a book about Postgres by Addison Wesley. And in nineteen ninety nine, I'm always like, Well, okay, now he'll be an author, that's kinda cool. Uh, and then things pretty much took off from there. I worked for a, a Postgres support company out of uh, Norfolk, Norfolk, Virginia in two thousand, two thousand one. Then I worked for a Japanese Postgres support company for five years called SRA. And then now I'm with uh, Enterprise DB, and it's been a real, it's been a real, you know, joy doing this. My wife says I can't retire because she's like, "What else are you going to do?" You know, I mean, <laughs> you're already kind of flying around and visiting places and having a lot of fun. So um, it is a very unusual job. A lot of people don't really understand what I do because they're like, "Well, you're home a lot, and then you like disappear to these very far places, and then you come back, and then it's just very odd." To not them. a day, not not a clock in, clock out kind of job, is it really? Yeah, there's like. I think there's a handful of people that kind of understand, uh, uh, but you know, it took my parents even a while, I think, to get it. That's brilliant, man. That's really interesting. And 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 with Postgres, then in particular, like as you say, it kind of came about in like the mid. Well, you you, you heard about it in the mid '90s. Um, it was all right to maybe like do a, a, like a bit of backstory about Postgres, like how it came to being, and and, and you know, like what the other alternatives were. Because I know you said you picked, you, you chose Postgres. Like, what what was the decisions behind that? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, I know I started in 96, which sounds like a long time ago, but the code actually goes back 10 years before that, which is, so you're, you know, ignite, you know it's, two, it's 2016. So Postgres is in its 20th year of open source, but it's in its 30th year from origin. So it was originally developed in 1986 by Michael Stonebreaker, the same person who originally developed Ingress. And it was designed as being basically post-ingress. So that's why it's called Postgres, because it's post-ingress. And it was designed to be a the next generation of relational system. And the term they came up with ob- was object relational. And the reason it was so groundbreaking at the time is because even until recently, when you had a data type or a stored procedure language or an operator those were all baked into the database. Like, you know, you had, you had the, the integer was defined in the binary uh, of, you know, a text string was the, the format for a text string was defined in the binary. And, and you had really almost no ability to add new data types, to add new operators, to add new stored procedure languages, to, uh, to add new indexing and so forth. Um, and Postgres in 1986 was designed to allow you to plug in new data types, new languages, new indexing, new operators. Um, there's a whole span of things that you can add to Postgres, new functions, obviously. 
Um, and that sort of object relational heritage was there when I when I took over or, or got involved in '96, and it was a struggle the first couple of years. But now you have a lot of the features of Postgres, um, which are always taking advantage of that pluggability. So when you add JSON and you add PostGIS, you're really kind of adding them to an existing structure that already is designed to allow for the addition of new data types and new features. And, and that's some of the things that have allowed it to sort of take on some of these non-relational uh, workloads and some of the interesting workloads that I think we're seeing now uh, that no other database really can take on, uh, relational at least. Like, so we do JSON really well. We do range data types really well. We do GIS really well. We do full text really well. Some relational systems can do some of those, but they usually do it in a very awkward way that's sort of half, it's not fully functional. Whereas in Postgres, all of those are effectively native and they appear to be native when you either use them or install them. I didn't realize that in 96 when I chose Postgres. I just chose Postgres because it was closest to the enterprise databases that I had been using um, in, in, you know, in industry. Uh, so, you know, the transition between Ingress and Postgres or Informix and Postgres, you know, pretty much the same syntax was understood, the same support was there, the same clauses, uh, the same write-ahead log functionality, the same sort of tuning. Uh, it had a very familiar feel to it. Uh, and that, of course, has helped a lot of people to migrate to Postgres. Uh, in, the, in recent years, we've seen huge, huge migrations. We've always had migrations, but uh, the past three years or so, you've seen huge organizations now moving away from proprietary databases to Postgres. And that's, I think that's going to continue. And so the familiarity is, is part of that, that, that it, it really is designed to be an enterprise database similar to the other ones out there. So going a little bit, but um, I just, uh, well, been working on a project for the last sort of six months. And um, uh, when I was sort of specking it out, I realized that uh, the amount of volume I was dealing with was a lot, lot higher than any of the sort of websites I'd ever worked on. And so basically I went to Ed and I was like, uh, what day space should I use? And and um, uh, people told me all sorts. And Ed was saying, well, go with Postgres. And I'd never used it before. Um and like you say, I, I guess from my background, uh, using MySQL in the past, making that switch, it wasn't like, you know, a huge, huge move away. Although there is, you know, a lot of differences. Um, but one of the things I sort of said to Ed the other day is, uh, do you have a benchmark for how long a query should take? And I mean, it, you didn't really have an exact answer, but is that something that, that you yourself have? Or you have like a benchmark? You say, well, if this query is taking this long, then, you know, it's not right. Or how how do you really measure what's a good query and what's not? Yeah, I have a whole bunch of talks basically related to performance tuning and looking at whether the system is tuned properly. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it's almost identical in terms of concepts as the way you would approach uh, an Oracle or an Informix or DB2 uh, sort of performance problem. So the the reason there isn't really a benchmark for specific queries is that, is that, and this is one of the reasons that I think the databases are so interesting, is that effectively, unlike most applications, which have a pretty standard API and a pretty standard way of interfacing, uh, a, a relational database is designed to, to interpret a language. 
Um, and in fact, it's a language that's declarative, not imperative. And what I mean by that is that in SQL, you are declaring what you want. And you are asking the server to interpret that and to figure out the fastest way of giving you the result. That's compared to an imperative language where you basically tell the computer what to do. You know, open this file, search to this index, whatever. You don't do that in SQL. So there are many systems that can take, you know, the, where where your average query is de- defined in terms of milliseconds uh, or even microseconds. You know, say, all right, uh, the average query time, you know, should be two two milliseconds for for this class of queries. Uh, there are other systems more in the data warehouse space where a query for running for several hours would be quite normal. Yeah. So um, what we normally tell people to do is to look at three areas of your system. The first is hardware. Uh, Database systems are very sensitive to uh, permanent data storage, what we call F-Sync, or the the flushing of your data to some permanent area. And this is what's required for asset compliance on a relational system. So when you uh, commit a transaction, one of the requirements for an asset compliant database is that uh, you're guaranteed that even if the server loses power, that server, that data that you committed is permanently stored. So it's basically the D in ACID is durability. Um, and that means that your storage subsystem, particularly your I.O., uh, has to be very well tuned. Normally people, when they select a database server, they, they focus a lot of times on, on the CPU and then secondarily on the memory and then tertiarily on the, on the storage. Normally, this, for a database server, the storage is the most important part. Then the CPU is actually not that interesting. Uh, most systems in production are running fairly idle CPUs because they're, they're typically bottlenecked on, on I.O. And if they're not bottlenecked on I.O., they very well could be uh, bottlenecked on the memory bus. So once you have that down, then you start to look at the server configuration parameters. There are a handful or probably dozens of server configuration parameters in Postgres that control uh, performance. There's probably only three or four that are probably important for an average system. And then once those are handled, then you start to look at the SQL. Do we have the right indexes in place? Are the queries well constructed? Uh, is the is the data normalized in a way that would give good performance? So um, you know, if you're thinking of a very simple uh, type of piece of software where you it's just a get and a put, right? Like think of a REST interface or something. Yeah, you know, that's really easy to benchmark. Like, okay, it should take this long to get an answer because I really can only ask one thing, right? Yeah. Um, problem with Postgres and all the relational systems is that I can ask a whole bunch of things. So you end up looking at things like, you know, your 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 hardware, your server config, and then your queries. And then if you need to benchmark, you probably want to uh, start either something like PG Stat Statements, which comes with Postgres, or or PG Badger which allows you to look and say, okay, here are my slow queries. Uh, so what you can do with those two tools is to effectively uh, run your workload for a couple of hours or a day. And what you're doing during that process is either collecting the logs in PG Badger or PG Stat Statements. So then you can look and you can say, okay, here are my four slowest queries. Why is that happening? Uh, and then you can kind of drill down and you can even look and say, well, these queries might not take a long time, but but they run so often that effectively, you know, even if a query only takes half a second, if you run it 10,000 times, right, 
then that might be a query that's taking a lot of time. Spin them out up over time. Mm. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes the answer is it's doing as good as it can. Uh, but then there are other times when you can, this is the thing that always bothers me. A lot of times there are these unbelievably small changes you can make, which just like rocket your system, you know, like your system just becomes like 10 times faster. And, and you know, I'll give you a typical example would be uh, if you're using a database server and every time you're committed to a transaction, we're flushing it to durable storage, but you don't have any like memory backed, um, a battery backed memory, either on your controller card or on your SSD. Um, and you're flushing these F syncs to magnetic disk, right? And therefore you can only F sync a magnetic disk like 250 times a second. So no matter how fast your server is, you're basically throttling all these kicks. The two, so that's why I usually look at the at the hardware first. A lot of times, an SSD with a battery, and you put your Whitehead log on there, can give you just unbelievably great performance. Sometimes doubling the amount of memory, um, because so you're not pulling, you're, you have more stuff in memory. You're not pulling so much from the I/O. That can make a huge difference. Uh, increasing shared buffers can improve things. Increasing a, a parameter called workmen can reduce the amount of on-disk sorting that we do. So those are kind of the things that I look at. At the SQL level, there isn't a whole lot to break. Obviously, if you're missing an index, you know, it can help. Yeah. Uh, but most people kind of have that have that down. Uh, but it is kind of an art. I mean, there's a bunch of books that say sort of the art of, you know, performance tuning or whatever. And it's kind of an art because there isn't really a cookie-cutter way of going at it. You have to look at those three stacks or those three levels of performance and kind of make sure each one is functioning well you know from the bottom up and once you get it there it pretty much stays there it doesn't break usually and and there are there is quite a bit that you can do but the, the the unfortunate thing is normally you either have to take some class or you have to read you know quite a bit about performance tuning to kind of have a sort of a an eyeball idea of oh yeah this looks good or oh yeah this doesn't look good Another thing I've recommended some people do is if, depending on where you're located, is to just bring in a consultant for a day. You know, it's yeah. not that expensive. Um, and just have them look at your system from top down. And usually within a day or two, uh, they can either say, hey, everything looks great. I really can't improve things. Or, hey, you know, things are good, but we can make these two changes. And I think this is going to make a big difference. And that's a lot of times the, the most efficient way, particularly for developers who don't want to spend a whole lot of time sort of learning the ins and outs of the system, to just bring somebody in for a day and have them sort of check things out. Uh, that's usually mm. pretty economical because there are a lot of Postgres support companies around the world who do that. I think that's great advice. One thing I was um, reading yesterday, I've been reading um, Sam Newman's book on microservices, and, um, and there's a bit where he, he's talking about splitting up schemas, but uh, well, the other th- one of the things he talks about is, uh, I think he mentions Postgres with this, but having like... Um, like a was it a replica table? Can't think now. Um, where you have one which is like just for reading, yep. so that the other one that you're writing to is just you know freed up for that. Is that something you recommend as um you know quite a, a an easy way of in, increasing performance? Oh yeah, absolutely. So this gets a little philosophical, but what you're really asking about is multi-server uh, database architectures. So um, obviously, you know, it's great to have everything on one server, but as you know, when you get to certain workloads, it's just not possible anymore. 
yeah. either because the network becomes saturated or the IO channel becomes saturated, or the CPUs become saturated, or you just can't stuff any more memory in the system. Um, and once you get, once you decide that you want to go to two or more servers for your database, you really have a decision to make. The two options are that you're going to use the additional servers only to handle read-only traffic. But the, and the second option is an option where you say, I want to do read-write traffic on all of those additional servers. The deceptive answer is, I just want the second one because then I don't have to really think about which server I go to and everything will be hunky-dory. Yeah. The downside, the thing that very few people understand, is that databases are not like web servers. So if you want, if you're running a web, a static web server and you need more traffic, you just create new web servers on more, more machines and you just copy the... The, you know, the www directory over, right? Yeah. Yeah. Load balance across those those web servers and boom, you're 10x or 20x or however many servers you want to add. The reason that works so well is because the, the web traffic, the web contents being served is static. But by definition, your databases are very not static. They're dynamic and a lot of them have very high write workloads. Yeah. And when you try and spread white right workloads across multiple machines, things become very complicated and potentially very slow. Interconnect between those servers, no matter how good it is, is never going to be as fast as CPUs or between the, 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 the cores on the individual CPUs. So when when somebody comes to us and say, well, I want to use multiple database servers and I think I want read-write on all of them, the problem is that when you do a write on one of them, you got to do a write on all of them. So you're really not, you're, you're, you're generating a tremendous amount of delay because you've got to pump all this write traffic to however many additional servers you have, which again doesn't apply to the web server case because you, you never change anything effectively in a static case. But then once you do that, then you also got synchronization issues. You've got to commit those transactions atomically on the multiple machines. It becomes very complicated. So normally when people come to me and they want to do multiple server, database servers, I'm try I always try and steer them to the case where, as you've Alec, you've alluded to, where I have one write server, but I have multiple read-only servers. Okay, so I have, I have one read-write server and then I have multiple read-only servers. And the, the easy way to do that is effectively to set up streaming replication between the master and all of your read-only servers. Yeah. And you can have dozens or even hundreds of those. You can cascade them. So you can have the master write to five read-only servers and then those each of those can serve another 20 or whatever you want to whatever architecture you want to set up and what's great about that is that there's no coupling between those read-only servers and the, and the master server in terms of data modification so you can't write anything to those read-only servers they, they you can scale them as as much as you want you don't slow down the, the read on the master server because there's no waiting there's no sort of pump of of white queries that are coming into that thing from these read-only servers. These read-only servers are just doing reads. So um, that's a very simple architecture. Mm. You have to do a little bit of work at the front end. Either you have to use something like PG Pool to send the right queries to one to the master and then load balance the read-only queries across the other servers. Or if you're doing data warehousing, you probably know you're doing read-only queries and you just run the data warehouse queries on on the read-only servers directly. You don't even bother with load balancing or trying to get the, the, the you know the right read to go to the right servers. Uh, but that's a very, very popular case. 
Um, we are working on sort of multi-master sharding, which I think is is uh, a case where you have so such great data volumes you can't even write them to one server. That's when the master will become overwhelmed. That's sort of a high-end case. We're probably a year away or two years away from. Um, but I think the simplest answer when you get started is to is to really go the simple route. Create those streaming replicas. They're very easy to manage. They're very easy to set up. They have almost no overhead on the master. Um, and you can get tremendous read scaling in that case. I think that sounds really cool. It's definitely something I'm going to do. And I think the other thing uh, Sad Newman said was uh, you could even have it, you can configure it so that if your master does go down, then the writes then happen on the, on the slaves. Absolutely. Um, so um, there's, a, there's a special trigger file um, that you define when you create the replica. Yeah. And uh, the system will look for the creation of that file. And as soon as that file is created, uh, either by you manually or by a failover mechanism um, or, or some heartbeat program, all of a sudden that replication becomes the new master. Sure. That's cool. So, yeah, so you, you're not only getting read-only scaling, but you're getting high availability as well. Um, well, one thing actually, like you, you, you spoke about at the beginning, was the fact you know that SQL is a declarative language, and and as a fact, you know, it's a beautiful thing, really, where you know it, it hides a lot of the complexity that you know we don't really matter, you know, doesn't really matter, you know, we're we're just asking for things, and it decides itself the best way of getting those. And a lot of your talk, well, a couple of your talks, sorry, have been like around the optimizer and the query optimization because you know how what is the best route to get these you know to get this information and obviously what Mickey was saying you know with like benchmarks on queries and stuff it's like well postgres you know and all these uh, all these relational database you know, systems and everything with sql really they need to do a lot of a lot of things they can't just specify on one thing so you know it's really the fact that it's got to do so many things how do we choose the best query and i was just wondering like how do we like to, to kind of un, you know, unwrap the SQL and then to work out what's actually happening? What what methods do we have for that? Yeah, so um, I think I think the, that uh, say, that that sort of smarts in the database, the optimizer. Um, I think that's sort of one of the sort of unsung heroes of relational systems because before you know we've been had, we've had relational systems so long for so long that uh, we kind of forget what it was like before. And what it was like before relational systems or before query optimization is that effectively applications had to know how the data was laid out. If they had to know if an index would be useful for a particular constant or value, it, they had to do the joins inside of the application. So you had to look up the, you had to look up the customer record you know, and then you'd, you'd have to then open the order record and then look up all the orders that match that and so forth. And relational systems really took a lot of that problem away. And they took it away in, a, in an interesting capability because not only did they um, sort of have smarts to figure out what the current layout was, but as the layout changed, as you added new tables, as you added new data, which changed some of the assumptions about how best to re- the results, the query optimizer automatically figures that out because you're you're regularly generating updated statistics, which record what the most current you know what the hundred most common values are in Postgres's case, and it also creates a histogram of a hundred buckets to know what spans of values are very common. So you have that kind of smarts there, and it really takes a lot of the burden off of the application program, and the applications become very much easier because the person, the application program, can just declare the data they want 
and the server will basically go and get it. The way you can, the most, the easiest way to access what is actually happening inside is to merely prefix the SQL command with the word explain. So you can do explain select, explain update. There's a whole bunch of explain commands. And effectively, when you do use the word explain before the SQL command, um, you basically get to see the way that the optimizer has decided it's going to go after data. So you can see what order the tables are joined in. You can see whether indexes are being used and which indexes are being used. And you can even see the types of joins that have been selected, like a hash join or a merge join or nested loop. Um, and you can basically get a feeling for exactly how the optimizer has decided it is going to get at the data. And if you're, you know, you, you asked the question earlier about performance tuning. I mean, that's one level of performance tuning where you have a query that's running particularly slow. You think it should be much faster and you run explain on it and you sort of dive into that explain plan and you look for either things that are missing. Perhaps there is an, an assumption about a constant that's incorrect. Perhaps there's a missing index. Um, perhaps the way the data, the, the query is phrased is causing the optimizer to do something unusual and you can change that. Um, so the explain it to me is really like a window into that optimizer and it's used very frequently uh, for debugging and performance tuning purposes. And, and yeah, with this explain, actually, it's really interesting because obviously when you unlock it and you open, you kind of peek behind the curtain and you see what really is going on. Um, I know from personal experience, you'll, you'll start looking at these and you'll be th- and you'll look at these little phrases and things and you'll be thinking, what actually, you know, what do these actually mean? Like that it's a whole new world, essentially, uh, you know, the different scan methods, as you mentioned, joins and things like that. And I thought maybe it'd be good and if you don't mind, maybe we kind of go through some of these to, to kind of demystify them a bit where you know at least then where people will understand you know like where things because i'll tell you what one story i had was that i used to think that any sequential scan was a bad thing i used to think if you had a sequential scan it was a bad thing so my my kind of red herring was if i didn't explain it was a sequential scan i'm doing everything possible to not make that now obviously then listening to your uh, watching your videos and kind of reading up more about this i realized actually what exactly a sequential scan is and you know kind of more in depth about you know what's actually happening and and why you know maybe it is actually beneficial so uh, the first thing i'd like to then discuss maybe is maybe the scan methods and like what exactly is a scan method yeah, so the uh, the terms that we're using here um, really seem kind of exotic, but the um, the nice thing is that they're pretty common across all of the relational systems. So like the terms we're going to talk about scan method, join method, and so forth, um, they're pretty basic. Obviously, the optimizers are you know significantly different under the covers, but the concepts are pretty much the same. So you're right. As you're looking at it, you're basically saying, okay, I declared... I wanted a specific piece of data, and now what Explain is doing is it's allowing me to see what the optimizer has decided is the uh, is the best way to get it. So we're going from declare to imperative, basically. We're seeing the imperative results of the declare declaration that was in my SQL. So there's, there's three uh, possible scan methods. I do have a nice presentation on my website called Explaining the Postgres Optimizer. Uh, the nice thing about that is it has diagrams because, frankly, I've, I've always been frustrated that uh, unless I see a diagram, I can't understand what's going on. You know, uh, like, yeah, and I really enjoyed actually your kind of looking at code of like how this is written in code as well. That really helped me. Yeah, like the pseudocode in That's Perl, it. Yeah, uh, was kind of neat. Um, I can usually when I present, I don't get a chance to really go into that because it, it's really hard to show code uh, a Perl script in like you know in a presentation, but. When people look at it later, they can sit and study it. 
uh, it does. It is. I think it is very helpful. So again, you're, you're kind of mimicking what an application program used to have to do. So a sequential scan is uh, a case where, an, just as an application program, would say, I'm going to open the file. I'm going to read every record from, from beginning to the end. So sequential obviously suggests that it's going to just read it in sequential order from start to finish. And you're right. It's not always a bad thing, particularly if if you don't have much restriction on a field, like if you basically say, you know, you know, give me all the customers who aren't in Alaska, right? How restrictive is that? Probably not very restrictive. So, you know, asking for everybody who is in Alaska, you're probably not going to use an index in that case because probably 99% of your customers are not in Alaska. And you may want to, you know, for example, you may just say, give me every customer who isn't in Alaska or Hawaii, right? So continental U.S. maybe. That would be an obvious case where we wouldn't use an index, and 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 you wouldn't want to try and use an index. Um, indexes are uh, sequential scan is unbelievably fast. Um, obviously, it's reading sequentially, so it uses the read ahead of the system. Uh, it doesn't have to bounce around to the index. There's no random I/O going on, so that performs really, really well when you're really going to look at the bulk of your data. The second method is in, is an index scan. That would be a case where you're looking at a secondary index. Um, looking up specific values that match a certain restriction, like, you know, customer is in Illinois, or, you know, customer name, you know, is a specific string. Uh, those would be cases where you're going to be looking in an index, typically a B tree, uh, although we do support a number of non-traditional indexing methods, uh, particularly for non-relational data like JSON and full text search and so forth. We have GIN and GIST for those, but just... The simple case would be a B-tree lookup, looking for a match of a name or looking for a match of an ID. Uh, you're going to go to the index. It's probably going to pull one or two or maybe more matching rows. And then we're going to go to the heap, which is where our sequential data is. And we're going to just pull the records that match. Um, so those are probably the two completely opposite uh, version, you know, options for for a uh, an access method. The one that's the third one is kind of in the middle. It's what's called a bitmap scan. And this is a really creative uh, solution where you've got a case, uh, not like sequential scan, where you're really going to go at the whole table or the majority of the table, but not as restrictive as an index scan. So you're not going into Alaska. Maybe you're going at, you know, give me all the customers in, you know, several U.S. states maybe. Okay. And, the, and what a bitmap scan does is it basically goes to the index, it finds a bunch of matches, and there may then typically for a bitmap scan, you may have dozens of matches, uh, maybe even hundreds for a very large table, and then create a bitmap of all of the matching possible records. And then once you've created that bitmap, maybe for one index, maybe for multiple indexes, you can actually create a bitmap by joining multiple indexes together. So if I was to say, Give me all the customers who are, you know, in Arizona who, you know, also owe us money and, you know, uh, get UPS shipping, for example. Um, that may require the access of three different indexes. And what we can do is we can access all three of those indexes. We can create a bitmap in memory that, rep that represents the union of all of those requirements together or potentially uh, an or if you're doing multiple different states, you have or clause, you can do the same thing. And then once you've finished with the bitmap, you can then access the heat data um, in a much more efficient manner. Uh, so that's sort of a hybrid between the two. 
you don't see that implemented in, in, in all database systems, but Postgres has had it for a number of years. Um, and it's particularly useful for data warehousing, where you've got like indexes on everything, you know, and you just want, you have this incredibly complicated query, and you want to basically take a bunch of indexes and merge them together. Uh, that's also a great use for that uh, bitmap index scan. And you do see explained uh, reporting a bitmap index scan for cases that are not as restrictive as an index scan, but not as wide open as something that would require a sequential scan. That's really cool. And, and actually, yeah, uh, the talk that you mentioned, the optimizer talk, it, it had a really cool example using the rel name table, the PG class rel name table. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really, really enjoyed that. And it highlighted, and I say, like, I recommend, and I'll put it in the show notes to everyone to check that out because it really showed. And, and I was just wondering, like, you know, so you've got these three different types of scan and, and then the explain comes along and it's saying, oh, by the way, here's the cost and here's how many rows and things. Just wonder, what, what actually is the cost then and the size and all these? Because obviously I think that, you know, Postgres has obviously got to decide on, it's got many paths. It's got, you know, all these different routes it could choose. You know, how does it go about based on the heuristics, based on the, like, the, the scanning, you know, which one to choose? Yeah, that's, I, I always, always cover that. So cost numbers themselves are meaningless. Um, I, 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 well, let me say, they're meaningless in relation to the real world. So I think the cost number represents, I think it's the sequential access of one page. I think that's what the number means. And all the costs, um, all the costs related to CPU cost and random cost, all kind of wrap around those individual numbers, okay? But the cost itself is kind of like a, it's sort of a made up, a pseudo number. Um, and the real, the reason, it, the only reason it's important is to compare against other numbers. So you don't really care what the number is. As long as this plan is cheaper than that plan, that's what we're going to go with. So the number doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, you can't really relate it to anything. It's not related to milliseconds or anything like that. It's just related to itself, like to others. It's so just related to itself. The, the other weird thing is the numbers are never accurate, hundred percent. You just, you just, you have to walk in accepting that the cost numbers are never going to be hundred percent accurate. Particularly because when we collect statistics, we only randomly sample the table. So we're only we're probably only looking at 1% of the rows when we do a random sample of a table. Because uh, so, so when you say random sample, you mean that like that's happening every so often. It's getting heuristics to decide, okay, this is, you know, this is information that we now know. Oh, by the way, they're very common. This, this, this looks very common. This is very common. And it weighs out those roots decisions. Exactly. So uh, when you have a command called analyze, which allows you to manually generate those statistics, if you wish, particularly if you if you populate a brand new table, you may just want to run an analyze just to get some stats on it. And the analyze typically takes like I don't know twenty seconds. It's really fast. It's usually less than twenty seconds. It's just going to randomly sample the table and pull out your data. Now, if you don't do that, if you don't run analyze, there is a an auto vacuum system that's been in Postgres for years, which will randomly, which will, which will when it look when it every minute it wakes up and it looks at all the tables. And it looks to see tables that either have no statistics or tables that have old statistics. And what we'll do is it'll basically in the background run this analyze command for you. So most systems never need to run analyze because effectively it's being run for them uh, in helper process anyway. But the, the, other, the other sort of aspect of this is that um, even if we got full statistics at a particular time, right, 
As soon as somebody does an insert, delete, or an update, the statistics are invalid because you're, you're going to be changing your data. I mean, if you're going to change your data, why do you need a database? Yeah. Right? So we know that those statistics are going to change. You know, we could go we could go nuts and just reanalyze every time somebody does an insert or a delete. But you know, there's no reason to do that because the numbers that so so the auto vacuum system. I think every time I want to say like ten percent or twenty percent of the table changes. The system will automatically run this auto vacuum again because it thinks that statistics are stale, meaning they're they're not fresh anymore. But the bottom line is that is that if the statistics are inaccurate, which they always are, they don't have to be completely accurate because all they need to do is compare against some other plan. So typically, when you run an explain, you know you're going to get uh, an explain plan with a bunch of costs and whatever. Odds are the next possible plan was like three times as expensive so who cares if we didn't get accurate statistics we were good enough that we didn't plead, we didn't choose this super bad plan right and effectively we got what we wanted the other problem is even once you start to do over 12 tables we randomly start checking plans so if you try and do a join with more than 12 tables we have something called a genetic career optimizer and it will randomly try different paths because effectively you know, if I take an hour to optimize a query that takes five minutes, well, that's kind of stupid, yeah, right? It's an hour and five minutes for just something right, else. Like, yeah. <laughs> why don't you just run a lousy plan? It would have taken 15 minutes <laughs> and we'd be happy, right? So you're always, you always have that tension between the time and the cost of getting the best plan versus the amount of time it takes if you choose a suboptimal plan. Because in a lot of cases, a suboptimal plan is not that much worse than, you know, the best plan you could possibly do. And this is a problem that every every relational system has. I think Postgres has been fortunate because we have such a very close relationship with our users and because we get very good bug reports and we, we work with people within 24 hours, we typically can nail down and optimize our problem and typically give them a patch that they can test. Um, to see if it fixes the problem. Uh, we've been able, obviously, from, from the optimizer we inherited in 1996, to develop you know, pretty much, if not the best of breed, certainly one of the best of breed relational optimizers out there. And it does a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and it's very well-tuned. And if something's wrong, we hear about it from our users, and we dig into it, and we find a way to improve it. And that's in contrast to a commercial or proprietary database where... The, the process of actually reporting an optimizer bug and getting to the engineers and having those engineers communicate with the users is this incredibly long, frustrating process. And because we're open source and because our developers and our users are, and our designers are kind of all the same people, uh, we're able to, to kind of short circuit that. And because we're open source, we can release really quickly and get patches to people uh, and help them to try it out. So, it's kind of an area that I think it's fascinating. It's one of the optimizers, one of the reasons I got involved with Postgres. Um, Tom Lane, I know, also was was curious about the optimizer, what he got him excited in getting involved. But again, most people don't really even know it's there, and they don't really have to because it, it pretty much does. It's, it's, it's almost too good, isn't it, as you say? Well, not probably isn't too, you know, it's not bad that it's too good, but it's the fact that because it, it's so good, people don't need to worry about it because it's going to be doing most, you know, the right thing, at the, you know, for what you need. Yeah, you know, I did work in the 90s with some relational systems, which I won't name, which were 
much less good than what we have now. <laughs> um, and I do know that it was very, very frustrating to report a problem. Uh, and a lot of times this resulted not in slow queries, but queries that returned incorrect results, uh, which is obviously super serious. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was, just, it was just a very, I don't know, just a very frustrating process. You mentioned the indexes, uh, you know, where you can do an index scan. Now, and I think a lot of people, you know, when they when they look into like the, po- you know, we look into the database relational world and they, they kind of look at performance, they'll look at explain, they'll be like, oh, you know, you need to add indexes, you know, and it's good indexing. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, because Postgres has a very rich indexing system compared to some other, you know, system, uh, other database, relational databases. And, you know, the ability to do partials and you know, expression indexes and different types of indexes, many to one. And I'm just wondering, like, is there like a kind of general consensus of like which one's best to use or is it very much specific on the data that you're, you're doing it on and things like that? Um, indexes are kind of a, uh, how do I explain it? It's kind of a, it's deceptive. People will, a lot of times will add an index and they'll say, oh, okay, you know, I'm doing a sequential scan. Let me, let me add an index. Oh, great. This query now uses an index. My job is done, right? But the thing that they don't understand is that the index is very often going to uh, have overhead. So when you create an index, what that means is that every time you do an insert, an update often, or a delete, you've got to touch that index. So what happens is a lot of people looking at a single query are saying, oh, wow, okay, this query became a little faster by adding an index. What they don't understand is that the all of the other inserts, update, deletes that are happening in the system now have more work to do. And what's deceptive about it is the cost of those inserts becoming slightly slower is very rarely calculated because there's normally a very small number of milliseconds that it takes to add that. But if you're doing a lot of activity, it's very possible for that index actually to be a negative. Particularly if you, if you add an index really for a query you're only running like once or twice a day. Okay, you see that a little, this a lot in data warehouse when you're trying to put, add a data warehouse query to an existing system, um, and you say, "Oh, well, okay, this I can cut ten minutes off if I add this index," but you're probably lost more than ten minutes during the day if you're, if that table is heavily modified. So there are a bunch of different index types in Postgres, as I mentioned, BTree. There's also GIST. There's also GIN, and those are designed particularly for non-relational cases. We have a lot of duplicates in your data. Or you've got a, a piece of data that has like a, an X and a Y component, like a geometric, where you're actually, um, you have to index both points at the same time. Uh, you can't just index the X and then look up the Y. You've got to have what is called an R-tree index, which, which actually uses bounding boxes to record sort of what pieces are in, in which parts of the graph or which parts of the, of the, of the geometric space. And that's kind of, you know, that's sort of a different type index. I think Postgres does really well with that kind of spatial stuff and that sort of non-relational stuff. Uh, in fact, I have a non-relational talk on my website uh, that goes over eight very popular non-relational areas. And what's really cool about that is you have unique indexing specifically designed for those non-relational data stores. That's so cool. As you say, you've got the the scanning you know, down and you're able to work out and look at your indexing and things like that. And, and then you'll look as you, we, we kind of uh, spoke a little bit about the joins. Um, and then there are like the three main joins as well. Sure, sure, sure. So, and again, these are traditional to all relational systems. So Postgres implements them, but you see these in different, in different other relational systems as well. So the simplest one is what we call a nested loop. And that's just basically 
take every row and compare it to every other row, right? I mean, that's the way most, if an application has to do a join, that's typically the way it yeah, does the it. naive way of doing it would be, yeah. yeah. It's just like four, you know, I is one to 10, J is one to 20, you nested inside of it and just loop through either one, right? That works fine if you have a small amount of data. But, you know, if you've got a lot of data, if you have a million rows in each table and you try and do that, you're talking a trillion comparisons, right? Because it's a million times a million. And a million rows is not that many, right? So you can't, you just can't do a nested loop for every case. The next one, which is a little, a little more interesting, is instead on the inner side, which we, we would typically do a scan on the inner side, what we do is we instead we create a hash. So we take one of the tables, we hash it, and then we do lookups into the hash. So instead of having to spin through all million rows on the inside, we basically hash the, the million rows into buckets, maybe a thousand buckets. And therefore, if I'm looking for a particular row, I just look at the bucket that matches that particular hash on the key I'm looking at that hashes to that match. And then maybe I look at three rows. And that obviously is a little more sophisticated, probably not something you're going to do in an application, but you could. Uh, but again, you, it, it's done automatically for Postgres for you. And Postgres automatically will choose either a nested loop or a hash automatically depending on the sizes of the table as is recorded in the table statistics. The third one is a merge join. This is the one that's probably the least intuitive. And in this case, you end up sorting the two tables. Uh, that's quite expensive because you've got to sort both sides. It's kind of a bummer. But what's great is once you've sorted both sides, you can basically compare the first row to the first row. And if that matches, you can try the first row to the second row. If that matches the first row to the third row, if that doesn't match, you know there are no further matches in that table because you sorted the inner side completely. Because if there was a match, it would be there. So then you can go to the second row in the outer side. You, can, you don't have to start at the beginning anymore because you know that the data is ordered and you know there are no rows before where you stop. And you can just compare, compare, compare. As soon as there's not a match, you can go to the third row and do the same thing. So you basically end up doing a lockstep walk through the two tables and you effectively are only really sequential scanning once once of each side. So you go from the top of the first table, of the outer side, the top of the, of the inner side, and you basically walk down uh, in a synchronized manner. And when you get to the bottom of both tables, you're done. And uh, that's not intuitive, but of course uh, is very traditional for relational systems. And Postgres Optimizer is obviously smart enough to know, oh, I want to use a nested loop here because the tables are small. Oh, I want to use a hash here because the tables are medium. Or, oh, these tables are huge. I better do a merge join. And how intertwined then are these decisions? Like, you know, the scan that it will use compared to the join it will use, the joint ordering, are they all kind of weighed up together? Yeah, so the way the, way the system actually goes at it is it's got, um, it's got weights for a sequential scan. It's got weights for an index scan. It's got weights or costs for a bitmap scan. And then it also has cost of how expensive an, uh, an index, uh, an nested loop would be, how expensive a merge join would be, how expensive a hash join would be. And it basically just tries them all. So it says, here, I've got two tables. I can use five indexes potentially on each table. Let me try every table with all five indexes and all the five join methods and see which one is cheaper. And then once it picks the cheaper one, it basically is done joining those two tables and it just keeps the cheapest one 
and then moves on to the third table and fourth table and so forth. So it really is all intertwined with the cost system. Not only is the cost determining scan method, but it also has pre-built costs of how expensive you know, a nested loop would be. So for example, a nested loop on a small table is very ideal because there's no cost. To, you don't have to sort anything. You don't have to hash anything, right? There's no, that, yeah, there's no boot up, no you know, pre-step at all. Right, you have, you have two, this is what we call the startup cost. So you have two tables. Each one has five rows. Well, it's 25 comparisons, right? That's going to be like a no-brainer. That's going to be nested loop. However, if there's, let's say, hundred, let's say 10,000 rows in each table, right? I might want to do hash join because I can hash 10,000 values really fast. I can't do a nested, the cost, when I compute the cost of two 10,000 row tables in a nested loop, it's going to be like, what is that? Like a trillion or something, <laughs> a billion. It's going to be a billion. It's not, like, it's not good, right? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at how expensive is it to hash something? And we have costs exactly, you know, per row, what's the cost of hashing two tables together? And we can cost that based mm. on the number of rows. And then if there's obviously a really big number of rows, then we're going to have to do a merge join and we're going to have to do thousands of comparisons. So again, it looks at the cost, it kind of computes what they, what they end up being and then it figures out kind of what the result would be. Uh, uh, Mickey, have you got any other questions? No, I think you've uh, you've covered it all. It's been really interesting. Yeah, re- yeah, kind of a whirlwind tour over all the performance stuff. I think it's really interesting. I think it's these these kind of areas that you know, specifically like for me, I'm very interested at the moment with like the SQL and how the query optimizer works under the hood because it's mm. it's that kind of black you know like that um you know that black box kind of feel to it. You know, when you first look at it, where you just look at the declarative, oh yeah, and it's just working, and you know, but it's like, well, why is it actually working? So it's really interesting to learn these terms, um, and I really appreciate it, Bruce, you coming on the show yeah. to to explain this, and I'll. I'll put all that in the show notes all your links to your your um, videos and stuff because they are just yeah an amazing resource great yeah these are it's i know it's what's always kind of interested me um is is this kind of detail of how everything works and uh how it works inside actually was always kind of fascinated me you know like it appears as magic but then when you understand how it all fits together it's 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 understandable. That's it. There, there is no magic. You can unlo- yeah, yeah. uncover the magic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, again, thank you so much, uh, Bruce. Yeah, I really appreciate you. it. And I know it's been a bit of a bit of a manic time trying to get this organized. But yeah, I'm really glad we were able to have this good chat. Yeah, my pleasure. Awesome. All right, then, audience. Well, it's been another great episode. And uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at 3devsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number 3, Devs and a Maybe.